Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from March of 2017 on how environment, stress, and nutrition might change your DNA. To find out about future science cafes, please visit umnh.org. Good evening, everyone. We're going to get started now. We're standing here in the, in the center of the room, and this is where the action takes place. I'm so glad to see all of you here this evening. My name's Amy Harris. I'm the director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan, and we're the organizers of the Science Cafe series. Tonight's Science Cafe is called Can Nutrition, Stress, and Environmental Exposures Change Your DNA? So with that, I'd like to invite you to thank Connor O'Neill's for making this space available. And now I'd like to invite George to come up. George is going to tell you about Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Society, and they are tonight's sponsor. So thanks to Sigma Xi. Okay. Thank you, Amy. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the uh, Sigma Xi organization is um, about 130 years old. It's um, originally founded in Ithaca, New York, at Cornell University. There are over 800 chapters, um, and uh, they're all around the world. Uh, Michigan was number 16. It was uh, founded in 1903. And we like to do things like this to sponsor events to uh, promote appreciation of science. So thank you all for coming. What is what? It's a scientific honorary society, scientific research honor society. And we thank you very, very much for your sponsorship. All right. Um, Amy and I were talking earlier in the year, and we realized that I've been doing these science cafes for more than 10 years, and some of you have been coming to them for that whole time, so give yourselves a hand. So yay. Um, so tonight, the topic, even though it, this wasn't in the title, is epigenetics. Not everybody knows what that is, so I've invited some speakers who are thankfully going to explain it to us. Um, but it's about how your experience in the world might change your DNA uh, or change certain things near your DNA. Um, and I'll let them explain uh, what that is. So we have three speakers, and I'm going to introduce them in the order that they're going to speak, I hope. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, Dana Dolanoy. Um, is Associate Professor of Environmental Health Sciences and Nutritional Sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and Director of the Medical School's Epigenomics Corps. At the School of Public Health, Dr. Dolanoy leads the environmental, yeah, leads the Environmental Epigenetics and Nutrition Laboratory. I thought I was saying the same thing twice, but it's actually different. Um, <laughs> The Environmental Epigenetics and Nutrition Laboratory, and that lab investigates how nutritional and environmental factors interact with epigenetic gene regulation to shape health and disease. Dr. Dolanoy holds a PhD in genetics and genomics and integrated toxicology from Duke and a Master of Science in Public Health from Harvard. 
She has more publications, honors, and awards than I can possibly mention here. So I'm just going to say that most recently, she received the 2015 NIH Director's Transformative Research Award to develop novel epigenetic editing tools to reduce disease risk. And she served as the co-chair of the 2016 meeting, Toxico-Epigenetics, the Interface of Epigenetics and Risk Assessment. So please welcome Dana Dolanoy. Don't start yet. Wait. I'm going to introduce everybody, and then I'm going to get out of the way. Um, <laughs> so uh, our second speaker tonight uh, will be Kelly Bakulski. Did I say that right? Awesome. Uh, Kelly's a research assistant professor in the U University of Michigan School of Public Health in the Department of Epidemiology, and she also completed her PhD in the School of Public Health in Environmental Health Sciences. She did a three-year postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins University Center for Epigenetics. And Kelly uses epigenetic epidemiology to test the combined genetic and environmental causation of neurological disorders throughout the life course. Uh, she's worked on mental health issues such as autism spectrum disorder, substance abuse, and Alzheimer's disease. Kelly commonly assesses risk from exposure to heavy metals, endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and nutritional metabolites. Please welcome Kelly Bakulski. And our third speaker is Dr. Srijan Sen. Did I say that right? Yes. I'm on a roll, guys. Um, he is in the... He is the Francis and Kenneth Eisenberg Professor of Depression and Neurosciences. He received his MD and PhD from the University of Michigan, completed a psychiatry residency at, the, at Yale University, and returned to U of M as faculty in 2009. Dr. Sen's work focuses on understanding the biology of stress response and the determinants of resilience and vulnerability to stress, so super interesting stuff. His work has been covered in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, and other media outlets. Dr. Sen uh, is the PI of the Intern Health Study, a longitudinal, longitudinal study of stress and depression in over 13,000 training physicians. So if you watch those TV shows with the crazy interns and residents, <laughs> that's who he's studying. Um, the studies generated important findings related to genes and biomarkers in depression, medical education, and predictors of stress response. Please welcome Dr. Sen. All right. So now I'm going to get out of the way, and these guys are going to talk, and I'm going to advance the slides, so let me know what you need, okay? So, wow, good evening. Um, thank you, Kira, for the kind introduction and for Sigma, Sigma Xi for hosting and the Museum of Natural History. It's really exciting to be here with Kelly and Srijan to talk to you tonight about epigenetics. It's also ironic that about an hour ago when I was getting ready to walk over here, my thesis mentor, Randy Jurdle from Duke, he called me up and he, to gloat about how wonderful the weather was down there in North Carolina. And he asked me what I was doing tonight, and I said I was going to give a talk in a bar. And he said, wow, he's given science talks on five or six continents he couldn't remember, and even on a beach in Southern California with surfers behind him, but never in a bar. So now I have <laughs> one up on Randy Jurdle. So... In order to introduce this term epigenetics, which is how environment, nutrition, and stress gets under our skin, I have a little story I'd like to tell you. 
But before I launch into that story, when I told my mom about 15 years ago that I was going to be an epigeneticist, she mistook that for epidermis and thought I was going to study skin. And she said, that's really great, dear. Skin cancer runs in your dad's family. So, <laughs> so I quickly realized that there was a great need to explain this term epigenetics in a really short and visual way. And so along came these two that we're going to put up here on the, on the slides. <clears throat> so these are the famous agouti mice. And any of you parents or grandparents in the room can appreciate that when you try to get one or more children to stand still, smile at the camera, this is not a fun experience. And that's the same for these mice. And so I'd like to give credit to my then-boyfriend, now-husband, for being the photographer, Mike Sapola of these mice. He never gets any credit. It's always Dolanoy and Jertle. <clears throat> so as we can see, the, these two mice don't look much alike. One's brown, one's yellow. The brown one's slender, and the yellow one could stand to knock off a few ounces. But what's truly cool about these mice is that they're sisters. And they're not only sisters, but genetically identical twin sisters from the same mother. So how do they look so different? And to help explain this, next slide, we have to go all the way back to 1953, when this now familiar DNA double helix made its debut on the cover of Nature. And many, of us, many of us recognize this as the pioneering work of Watson and Crick, that paved the way for the eventual Human Genome Project. And remember at the beginning of the Genome Project in the 1990s, we were going to identify the somewhat hundreds of thousands of genes in our genome. Well, it turns out we have about 20,000 genes in our genome. And they determine much of who we are, how we grow, whether we get sick or remain healthy. But the Genome Project didn't tell the whole story. It failed to identify the instruction book that tells these thousands of genes when to turn on, where to turn on, how to re react to various environmental impacts. So all of that is the job of this next slide, the epigenome. And if I describe this graph in great detail, we would be here all evening, which I'm sure many of you guys would like to be. Connor O'Neill's a wonderful place. So instead, I'd like to introduce an analogy, and that is the one of the computer. Our genome is sort of like the hard drive on your computer. It contains a lot of data. But all of that data just sits there until the epigenetic software comes along and tells it what to do. And in fact, any of you guys, to continue our TV theme, who have seen CSI or Law and Order, we know that every cell in our body has the same DNA. But not every cell in our body has different epigenetic profiles. So this helps determine how a stem cell becomes a heart cell, a liver cell, or in the case of those two agouti mice, a blonde or brown hair cell. So in the next slide, I'll tell you a little bit how it works. The epigenome is comprised of a series of switches and markers that help control when our genes are turned on and turned off. And the most extensively studied mechanism is DNA methylation, which sounds pretty intense, but it's really a carbon and three hydrogen. It's a methyl group. It sits down on our DNA, and it acts sort of like a dimmer switch. So a gene that lacks DNA methylation is brightly expressed. It's on all the time. So if this is a tumor suppressor gene, that's great. But if this is an oncogene that causes cancer, that's not really good. But when that same gene gains DNA methylation, it can be turned down, sort of like the dimmer on the switch. 
Other epigenetic mechanisms include these histone modifications, and they just help compact the DNA into the nucleus where these genes can remain poised for action when they're needed. And Kelly's going to explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But what's really interesting about these epigenetic programs is unlike our genome, which is static and not modifiable, our epigenome is dynamic and potentially modifiable. So this gives us some hope. Next slide, please. So over the years, it's become clear that there's a consequence of having this dynamic epigenome. And that's the fact that external factors can interact with this epigenome and change how our genes are expressed. Some of these interactions are positive, some of them are neutral, and some of them can be negative. So about a decade ago, we started some work looking at bisphenol A, or BPA for short. Has everyone in the room heard of this chemical? Now we have to worry about BPS and BPF, so as we replace BPA with these other very similar situations, we just have to repeat the, the same studies. But what we do, BPA is the monomer that makes up hard, clear plastic. It's found in everything, baby bottles, water bottles. It lines all um, aluminum cans, and it's found in receipt paper. It's virtually impossible to reduce, eliminate your exposure to BPA. So we use the agouti mouse as an initial biosensor for how the mother's exposure to bisphenol A impacts the epigenome of the offspring. And when we fed the mother BPA in her diet at moderate doses that were similar to what humans might be exposed to, the number of yellow obese mice went way up. And we saw that this was because these obese mice lacked DNA methylation at their agouti gene. It was turned on all the time when it should be off, and these agouti mice didn't feel full, and they kept eating, and so they have this adult-onset obesity. While they're genetically identical, brown individuals are protected from this effect. But the next study we did is we said, what if we give these moms a really good diet, high in these things called methyl donors? These are in green leafy vegetables. It's like folic acid, betaine, vitamin B12. If you give the mom methyl donors, but also expose her to BPA, you protect the offspring from this yellow obesity effect. So in this case, in mice, you can use nutritional interventions to counteract the negative epigenetic effects of bisphenol A. And that was pretty cool. So it's not just bisphenol A, but since then we've shown this with other exposures, such as lead in drinking water. That changes the coat color of these mice. Plasticizers, which are found in, pla uh, in flexible pa plastic, and even high-fat diet. So there are a number of different toxicant and nutritional exposures that can alter these mice coat colors. But so what? How does this affect us? So through some parallel studies that are funded through the EPA and the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, we participate in the Children's Environmental Health Center network. And in this network, we're able to analyze cohorts of children and mothers. And in one case, we looked at children in Egypt who are exposed to high levels of phthalate plasticizer chemicals, as well as bisphenol A. And in this case, we could see in their saliva DNA that the higher the exposure to these chemicals, the more altered their DNA methylation was. And we have parallel studies looking at lead exposure in Mexican children. And these Mexican children have been followed since the 1990s. And so now they are having their own children. And what's really 
concerning about the environmental effects on the epigenome is that they may not just affect that first generation. They can imprint the germ cells, the eggs, and the sperm of these individuals so that these environmental effects on our epigenome are passed down multi-generationally. Next slide. So where is this field heading? We've made a lot of progress over the past decade and a half, but there's still a number of challenges. And one of the challenges that remains is identifying on a population-based level who might be at risk from environmental exposures to the epigenome. And here in the state of Michigan, we have a really wonderful resource these neonatal blood spot cards. So any of you who have, ch who have had children born, not necessarily only in Michigan, but throughout the United States, we take a prick of the child's heel to test for genetic disorders um, that can be, if treated, can um, help the children's um, health status. But in the state of Michigan, we keep these blood spot cards, and researchers can use them. We started working with some pediatricians at Mott Hospital who have characterized kids for childhood obesity in southeast Michigan. We asked their parents, can we access their neonatal blood spot card? And we have now identified epigenetic predictors of which children would have become obese. So if you can apply this at the population level, you may be able to develop intervention techniques to protect individuals who might have certain disorders later in life. Next slide, please. So I mentioned that the epigenome is hopeful and that we may be able to modify it, but everything hopeful is not easy. There are a number of, a handful of FDA-approved epigenetic drugs that target certain types of cancer, but they methylate the entire genome or they demethylate the entire genome. So this is not ideal and it has a number of side effects. So I kept going back to these mice. What are we gonna do about it? How would you pr protect this yellow mouse from that adult onset obesity. And we're developing these epigenetic editing tools that Kira mentioned that are called pi RNAs. So these aren't apple pie, it's not 3.14, it actually stands for peewee because these proteins were discovered in Drosophila, which are fruit flies, and the fruit fly researchers really love to name things funny. So we have these pi RNAs that we are um, developing when you give a yellow mouse a pi RNA, it methylates the agouti gene and it protects that mice, mouse from becoming obese. So this is one of the first steps to get an epigenetic tool into the pipeline for a targeted epigenetic drug. And finally, this is my last slide, the knowledge that, you can hit it one more time, the knowledge that the epigenome uh, that environmental factors can impact our epigenome has a number of ethical, legal, and policy implications. Of course, we're all familiar with environmental justice, um, so people who are more exposed to not only toxicants, but other uh, stressors as well as poor diet can be more adversely affect, affected by epigenetic effects. And from a legal standpoint, I alluded to this, we used to think, you know, I'm the steward of my genome. If I decide to smoke or drink, it's on me. But now that we know that these epigenetic effects can be translated down to one, two, three, even the great-grandchildren's generation, we now have some um, need to protect future generations from these. And finally, any of you guys who are following some of the chemical reform um, legislation that's been making its way over the past several years, 
through Congress. We do not have a really good way to regulate how chemicals impact on the epigenome. In fact, they use our agouti mouse study as a reason why we shouldn't regulate chemicals for the epigenome. They say, yeah, even though you gave that mouse BPA and it got fat, when you gave it a good diet, you reversed it. So we only want to regulate on things that are permanent, that are adverse. So with that, I, I'd just like to conclude that I started off by talking about the Human Genome Project. This was over a billion-dollar project. There is a corollary human epigenome project. And if you've taken away anything for today, the epigenome is much more complex than the genome, and it's only getting a fraction of the funding. Um, and this is before the new announcements last week that the genome project was getting. So I'd encourage any of you guys who have questions about this research to catch up with one of us after the talks or, or any time in the future, and we can tell you in more detail about how important this work is for protecting not only our health but the health of our future generations. Thank you. Do you think the DNA in your cell, in a single cell, would be if you strung all the chromosomes end to end? Do you guys have any idea how long the DNA in just one cell is? Do you think it's six inches? Should I keep going? <laughs> is it a foot? Should I keep going? How long are we going to get here? We're all the way out to two meters. It's taller than I am. Okay, so this much genetic information is in every, oh, thank you, in every single cell in our body. That's a tremendous amount of information. And how do we physically package it all the way up? Do we crush it and smush it the way I pack my suitcase when I'm going on a trip to make it as small as possible? No, you need some parts of it have to be open and flexible and has to be useful, right? We have to have proteins be able to bind it and RNA transcription machinery be able to get in there. So there has to be some balance between packaging and accessibility happening here. And how big do you think a cell is? Does anybody know what the biggest cell in our body is? Neurons are pretty big if you count the entire extension. The entire... Um, round cell body aspect of a cell that's the largest is the ovum the human egg it's about a millimeter in length um, so you can see that one with the naked eye but the vast majority of our cells are so small we can't even see them so how do we fit two meters worth of dna down into something we cannot even see so this is the first question of many that um, captivated me about epigenetics and got me really into this area and why i'm, I'm still dedicated to this field so i'll, I'll talk about five um, questions today, and the first one's all about DNA packaging. How do we how do we make it fit? So you can <coughs> advance. This is um, a picture of all of your chromosomes lined up and paired up. They uh, go in pairs like this when the um, cell is dividing. And here, um, the scientists have labeled all of the chromosomes with slightly different fluorescent tags. So all of the chromosome pairs are different colors. Um, now, we know under normal circumstances, uh, the cell is at rest. The nucleus is kind of in a ball-type shape. They're, everything's not perfectly ordered like this, so if you advance. They kept those fluorescent tags and looked to see where all those chromosomes line up during normal, normal time here. What do you guys notice about this, this nucleus? They're separated. The, the pairs are no longer together. They're not in rod-type shapes anymore. So there's kind of this complex um, geometry that's happening in the nucleus um, that, that is really, really fascinating. If you advance one more 
and we can um, informatically map where all of those chromosomes like to be, and there's kind of predictable relationships. So down in the lower left, chromosome 2 really likes to be next to chromosome 4. And this is an um, example from a male human fibroblast cell, and we know that all of our different cells in the body have different configurations that they prefer to be in. And then one more advance, and what we see is there's huge chunks of the DNA that's packed up tightly and out of the way, but then there's these other loops that are out there, and then loops from different chromosomes are able to interact with each other. So we get co-regulation networks happening um, with, this, with this packaging. All right, one more. So my next question has to do with um, the issue of cellular diversity. So how do we take this six foot stretch of DNA and make all these different cells out of it. Um, it's one hard drive, as Dana mentioned. Um, how do we take that information and turn it into a neuron versus a skin cell, both of which have very different shapes and very different functions? So we have the same information, and how do we make it work? This is a historical figure from Conrad Waddington in 57, so just after we got the um, image of nucleic acid DNA structure. Um, and he hypothesized that this was how the human epigenome worked. And it's kind of like the Plinko game in The Price is Right. Has anybody ever watched Price is Right? <laughs> so you drop the ball at the top, and it's going to go down these different arrows. And it's only going down. There's no way for it to go back up. So the idea is that you have a stem cell up at the top that's epigenetically flexible. Um, and as it's exposed to different internal environments, that cell starts to differentiate and take on um, different epigenetic traits that help lock it into its cellular identity. So that groove on the left side might lock it in to be a neuron, and that groove on the right side might lock it in to be a, a skin cell, for example. You can advance. Yeah, so everything's going down with this model. And then the next slide. We have a little bit more recent research that shows maybe it's not quite a Plinko, unidirectional slide, that it might be a little more like a pinball setup, where sometimes you can go bounce all the way back up, and you can advance one more. And um, if you guys have heard of induced pluripotent stem cells, that's what scientists are doing in the lab. They're forcing a specific environment on a cell and driving it back up into a stem cell state and forcing it to come back down another way. So we're finding out ways uh, that the epigenome can be manipulated, even when we thought it was in a fixed state. And we know that this is um, a type of mechanism that's involved in cancer, so we start to see different regulation of different cell type identities. My third question and curiosity all about epigenetics has to do with um, signal integration. So we know that the epigenome is sensitive to a lot of multiple different inputs, one of which is the underlying DNA sequence, so the A's, C's, G's, and T's that make up your genome. Um, the epigenome is also sensitive to all of these environmental insults, as Dana mentioned. So your normal internal environment, such as your hormone levels, your nutrient levels, but also these exogenous experiences and um, chemicals which are interacting with our, our body in various ways. So how, what's the hierarchy of decisions? If we have um, inputs coming from our DNA sequence, from the environment, how is the epigenome able to incorporate all of this information at once? So one of the ways we got at this recently was um, we tried to look at all of the pairwise relationships between genetic sequence and epigenome. So at every site across the genome, we just looked to see, is um, if someone has a mutation in this spot, is it associated with an epigenetic change? 
And we were able to find all these spots all the way throughout the genome where those two were associated. And sometimes they're right next to each other. So a genetic mutation will cause an epigenomic change right next to it. And sometimes they're really far away. It could be on another chromosome even. So your genetic sequence can really influence nearby and far away epigenomes. And then we did a twist. We did this pairwise relationship in four different tissues in the body. We did it in um, cord blood for babies. We did it in um, children's blood around age five. We did it in postmortem brain samples. And we did it in adult lung biopsies. So four very different time points in life and four very different tissues. And we, again, mapped all these pairwise relationships between genetics and epigenetics. And um, we found that they're totally different in every tissue. Um, so th what that means is if you have some kind of mutation in one tissue, uh, if you have some kind of mutation, it could cause an epigenomic effect in one tissue and not in another. So there's some heterogeneity here in, in terms of where those effects are happening. We also looked, because um, we're an autism spectrum disorder research group, and we looked to see if there was any particular enrichment of um, the sites which we know are genetically mutated, more likely in autism, and those were more likely to have epigenomic effects in the brain tissue. So um, they were less likely to have effects, say, in the lung or in the blood, but we were seeing disease-relevant tissue effects based on those relationship between genetics and epigenetics. So getting at what types of cells are being affected by your genetic polymorphisms is important. And the last part of the signal integration is now layering on the environmental effects. So we've talked about the genetic effects and how it depends on the tissue in your body. Now we've got all of these environmental exposures. And Dana's done really nice controlled animal model studies where she's... Um, knows exactly what these mice, the Goody sisters, have been exposed to during pregnancy. Um, we did a bunch of studies in humans, which are a little bit messier, right, because we can't totally control what everyone's exposed to. But we try to measure it over time. And we work together in a group. Um, we get together with 30 cohorts globally. So we have mapped about 30,000 babies' epigenomes. And we're testing to see if there are different environmental exposures that the moms are experiencing during pregnancy if they have effects on the babies. And so far, we've found effects of mom smoking at reproducible and predictable specific sites on the babies. We found effects of maternal air pollution on the babies. We found effects of um, maternal folic acid intake on the baby's epigenome. We found effects of season of birth on the baby's epigenome. So there's all kinds of different effects. And the thing we've noticed, we've looked at all these different environmental factors. They're all at different sites. So it's just like when the genetic relationship with epigenetics mattered by tissue. Now we've got the environmental relationship with epigenetics matters by which exposure. It's um, a complicated medley of effects that's happening on your epigenome. And one more. And that kind of leads us into our next question. We're not entirely sure when the appropriate time window is. When are you most sensitive? When are you most vulnerable to all of this? So we can study... Um, Twin, identical twins. So they have identical genomes, just like the Agouti sisters. And actually, when they're first born, they have almost identical epigenomes because they've been exposed to the same environment during pregnancy. Um, but if we look at them when they get a little bit older, their epigenomes start to diverge a little bit more and then a little bit more. Um, and and so there's this predictable progression of epigenetic change throughout the lifespan, but it's non, it's, it's, it's inconsistent. It's got stops and starts to it. So we have certain periods in which our epigenome seems to be more sensitive than others. Um, and I mentioned, 
you can go one more, that I study the in utero period as a particular time window of sensitivity. Um, Justin Colosino over here is interested in breast cancer research, so he studies additional windows of susceptibility like puberty and menopause and pregnancy effects. So depending on which um, disease or tissue you're studying, there could be different windows of susceptibility. So as, we, as I mentioned, we've seen effects on the epigenome from pregnancy, smoking exposure, uh, mercury exposure, folic acid, season of birth, and those will persist in the kids we've seen out to about age 17. Um, we were also curious, because I'm in an autism spectrum disorder research group, if we could go even earlier than pregnancy, because we don't really know what's causing autism yet, but we do know that age of the parent is a risk factor for autism. So maybe the epigenome is one way that that age-related effect is being transmitted. So we took paternal sperm samples and um, measured the epigenomes of those and then followed the kids for three years um, and looked to see how many of them uh, developed autism. And so we saw huge uh, epigenetic effects in the sperm of dads who later went on to have kids with autism spectrum disorder. So this is... Um, a kind of an interesting study because we had previously thought that your epigenome got reset during fertilization. Um, so there's a lot of interpretation questions about this. We also haven't been able to replicate it because it's an unusual study design. Um, but it's provocative and it helps us think about how early do we have to go to think about what exposures are important for the epigenomes of, of the kids. How far back should we go? And that brings me to my last point, is how do we think about this? So I just told you that some of your epigenomes get fixed when you become a certain cell type or a certain tissue type, but now there's some responsiveness to the epigenome. So how, how do we reconcile these two ideas of um, being sturdy and stable and strong, but also being kind of resilient and flexible and adaptable? Um, so I kind of was thinking about it like a yoga pose. So we've got this sturdy foundation, but then we allow some flexibility in it, and some people weren't down with that metaphor. I, I heard um, that jello might be a, a better metaphor for something that's sturdy but also flexible. Um, somebody also suggested that the constitution is sturdy yet flexible. So you can kind of <laughs> choose your metaphor based on your, your industry and area. But this is the way I like to think about it, that we have, um, we have some fixed features that help dictate that our cells and tissues are what they are, but there's also this uh, ability to adapt to changes in the environment built into the system. You wouldn't want your entire body to be perfectly set forever. You want to have some of this flexibility in there a little bit, a little bit of range of that. So these are the, the five issues that I really, really drew me into talking about epigenetics and studying this for my career. We talked about packaging. We talked about signal integration. We talked about cellular diversity. Uh, we talked about timing. And then this issue about how stable is it? How reversible is it? What type of interventions can we do? Dana and I are involved in a weight loss trial intervention where we're trying to see if epigenetics change after specific actions. And um, yeah, thanks for your attention. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks, yeah, that's really cool. Um, so I'm going to talk uh, about one specific environmental um, exposure, uh, stress, as a, um, and, and how the, our genome might affect how we respond to stress and then how stress might in turn affect the epigenome that, um, that you guys have been talking about. So, um, so we all know stress is, is, is everywhere, and, and for uh, the types of 
diseases I study, psychiatric diseases, stress is the single most important trigger or factor uh, uh, um, that precipitates those diseases. So um, depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, um, eating disorders, all of those stresses is the biggest risk factor. Almost every, most episodes of, of uh, psychiatric illness are preceded by, by a major stressor. But we're learning more and more that stress is also an important risk factor for, for systemic diseases. So chronic stress especially increases your risk for cancer, heart disease, um, uh, autoimmune disorders. I don't know how they get people to volunteer for these studies, but there's um, there was one where they uh, uh, sort of squirted cold viruses in the nose of people, and um, they found that people the people who were stressed out were twice as likely to develop a cold than the people who weren't. Um, uh, so, which, I, yeah, I don't know how much they paid them, but hopefully, hopefully a lot. I have a cold right now. Yeah, yeah. As, I have a cold right now, so I wouldn't. Yeah. But um, so stress is stress is really important for for um, across across diseases. But um, but we don't all respond to stress in the same way. Um, when we expose uh, different individuals even to the same exact stress, some people are resilient to it, and other people are really susceptible and and um, and and struggle with it. Uh, so so two of the major questions that that. Um, that are in the stress field is is what factors and what determines whether an individual will, will be resilient or susceptible to stress. And then, especially for the people who are susceptible, how does stress get under the skin, um, like you guys have been talking about, and and sort of affect the the uh, affect health um, the next day, the next month, the next year um, over time. So as, as Kira mentioned, the way we study it in, in, in our lab is to look at a specific stress population um, uh, training doctors. So, uh, so last Friday, um, the, the graduating medical students at Michigan and then um, you know, tens of thousands of, of graduating medical students around the country found out where they're going to go to train, for, uh, train to be a doctor for their, for their internship and residency. Uh, so we've studied um, each year. We study about three, four thousand of these guys around the country um, at at this phase, right when they find out when they're where they're going. So right now they're happy, excited, um, <laughs> uh, don't really know what they're in for, um, and um, you know, sleeping well, doing so. About you know, three percent, three four percent of them right now um, meet criteria for depression. Very low levels of anxiety. Um, July 1st, they're going to start working um, 80, 90 hours a week, uh, uh, having to shift from days to nights, uh, making sort of life and death decisions that that, um, that they don't always make right, which is scary for patients, um, but also scary for uh, for these doctors. So, um, so their depression right now is three, four percent. Um, by mid July, about a quarter of them will be depressed. And, and that sort of, uh, they fluctuate in and out. So over the course of their intern year, their first year of training, about half of them get depressed. Um, so the, so we try to, to use this model. It's, it's, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a difficult model for them, but it makes, makes a nice, uh, a, a nice model scientifically because it's a rare situation that we can predict stress is going to happen. And in most cases, like, um, you know, job loss or divorce or developing an illness, we don't know beforehand that that people are going to experience the stress. This is a, a a place where we know that 
the exact date when the stress is going to start. Um, so, so we try to address the first question. Um, we know from uh, uh, family studies and studies of twins and adoptions that somewhere around 40-50% of the risk for, uh, for getting depressed or anxious or suicidal in response to stress is, is genetic, is due to those, those ACGs and Ts, that, that long sequence across the, the six feet um, that you inherit from your mom and your dad. And, but, but we don't really know as a field of what specific variations in that sequence um, play a role. Um, so we've done some work um, finding, and, and you, who's one of the table leaders, is, is leading this part of the project, um, looking across the sequence of the genome. Um, so, for example, we found um, there's a serotonin transporter gene, which is the um, a gene that that codes the protein that brings the 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 neuro the neurotransmitter or chemical serotonin back into the the serotonin neuron, and it's the you know the target of Prozac and Zoloft and most of the common antidepressants. That uh, a variation in that gene, if you have the the low-functioning version, it doesn't matter which version really you have before internship starts, you know, at, at this time of year. Um, you have about the same depression rates, but people with the low-functioning copy of the gene get um, get significantly more depressed during the internship stress than people with the other copy of, of the gene. And people have found the same genetic variation uh, is important in other types of stress response, like um, in in postpartum women or or uh, or individuals going off to uh, combat training in the army, um, and even more more general stress. But th- this this genetic variation only accounts for a really small percentage of the overall. It's not the depression or stress response gene. There'll probably be hundreds or thousands of others. But but it gives an example of what what type of um, scenario that that we're finding. And hopefully over time we'll we'll catalog all those those hundreds and thousands of genes and be able to predict. Um, more accurately, who's going to respond in what way to stress. Um, but we're also, as we can follow these, these doctors as they progress through their stressful year, we can look at their, um, uh, their epigenome. And, and we've been looking mostly at the, uh, the methylation that Dana talked about um, at, at, at different points of the year and see how that changes. And so we're seeing some changes in in specifically in immune function cells and pathways that that uh, that change with the stress and particularly predict who's going to um, particularly change in people who get depressed in response to the stress. Um, other groups have focused um, even more closely on early life stress and child abuse and and um, and maltreatment and found changes in, in a whole suite of genes. That cortisol is a um, is a hormone that that we all um, that 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 is released in response to stress um, acutely and chronically, and and um, and there's been a lot of changes in, in found in cortisol-related genes that that respond to early life stress, and that predicts later risk for depression and suicide and and a whole risk a whole suite of psychiatric illnesses. Um, but but both the genetic and epigenetic work related to stress and, and psychiatric disorders is really in its infancy, and we're not yet at the stage of of, um, uh, of having that lead to, to new treatments or ideas. But but it's really promising as a both marker of stress and to see how 
stress is having an effect in following um, following people who are who are exposed to it, and then hopefully in, in identifying new targets and and pathways that that could lead us to new treatments. So. Um, uh, so we're not there yet, but it's a really exciting um, time to be in this field. So thanks. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much. So just to give you guys a sense of what's coming next, in case you haven't been to a science cafe before, um, this is a time when you can talk uh, at your tables. Uh, we have some um, table hosts who are people who know a little bit about the subjects. Raise your hands. You guys are out there. There's two or three people. And uh, these guys are ringers, so um, <laughs> so go ahead and ask them some questions. You also have some discussion questions um, on on your tables, uh, and it's labeled table talk. Um, so we'll talk for about 20 minutes, give or take, until there's a lull in conversation, and then we'll come back together for the last 20 minutes or so uh, for a moderated group discussion. Um, so be sure to uh, see your wait staff and reward them appropriately. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, my job is now to interrupt your great conversation, so I apologize. Um, so we're, we're actually running a little bit over time, but I didn't want to interrupt before because your conversation sounded so great. So, um, so But now we're going to have a little bit less time for questions for group our group discussion. So those of you who are always writing on your evaluations that we should have more time for the talks at the beginning, I want you to know, one, that you're balanced out usually by the people who say we should have more time for discussion, but two... That you lucked out tonight. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, group discussion, a couple of quick ground rules. Um, I have agreed to moderate, and I will let speakers know when they have the floor and when they don't. Um, I'm going to pass this cordless mic. Please use it um, to enable those with hearing impairments to hear, and so that we can continue to record your converse- conversation for podcast. Uh, Matt's back there recording. Say hi, Matt. <laughs> okay, yeah, he's recording, so please talk into the microphone, otherwise you're not on the record. Um, and um, please limit your questions and comments to about 30 seconds to a minute, just so that lots of people can participate. Um, I may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, please look at me to be recognized, even though I don't know anything about epigenetics. Um but um, I do have the mic. Um, <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> um, so I always say this, and, and it's true. I know there's a lot of expertise and a lot of experience in the room. I always hope this part will feel more like a group discussion rather than just a question and answer session. I know we'll do a lot of that too. Um, so with this in mind, please feel free to address comments as well as questions to the, to the whole group as well as just our speakers. Um, we like to foster open discussion and honest debate, um, even though topics may be tense or uncomfortable or controversial. Um, please be nice to each other or else. Um, and then um, finally, if you forget to turn your cell phone off and it rings during this portion of the program, your epigenome may be at risk. So it may be at risk regardless, but don't stress about it because that'll just make it worse. Just turn off your phone. Um, okay. Can somebody start us off?
Okay, I've got one, and then these two gentlemen. I have a 15-second question for any of the speakers who wish to take it. Um, curious about the heritability of epigenetic variants, and they're pointing at each other. That's a good sign. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and the question has to do with uh, is what is likely to be the heritable component? Is it a specific epigenetic variant, polymorphism of some kind, or is it a re response to epigenetic, epigenetic change? In other words, is it global or is it specific that's being transmitted? Does anybody know? You, you look like a lifelong learner, so I think you should come to my um, lecture. I teach epigenetics to the master's students in the School of Public Health, and we spend about 30 minutes discussing that exact question during the first cl class period. Um, different people have differing opinions on the word heritable, but what most uh, epigeneticists agree on is we're talking about heritability in the mitotic sense, so from cell to cell. Um, we know exactly how DNA methylation is replaced. Um, we know the enzymes that are involved when a cell divides. It's complicated because we also can see epigenetic changes in neuron cells, for example, in rats when they learn a task, and neuron cells are non-dividing, so that then violates that heritability rule. But what gets on the cover of Time magazine and and you get most asked about is the other M of heritability, the mitotic inheritance from generation to generation. And there is some um, evidence that this is happening in rodent models. Um, there's a lot of controversy about how these rodent models were conducted. But there's also some um, natural experiments. So, for example, there's a town in northern Sweden over Calix in which the many years ago in the 1800s it was severely geographically isolated, so they needed to eat only the food that they could produce. So if they had a great crop, they were eating a whole lot of food because they didn't know if the next year they were going to have a bad crop. And so epidemiologists have gone back into the birth and death records of these individuals to the 1800s have showed that if your great-grandfather was going through puberty during this time of bountiful crop, you are more likely to die younger of some of these um, obesity-related syndromes, cardiovascular disease, and things like that. And because that was such a um, paradox, this um, has been replicated in England with the Avon longitudinal study showing that if your great-grandparents started smoking in puberty, you were also more likely to die young. So there's some fascinating anecdotal evidence of the generation to generation, but most of us are talking about um, from cell to cell, and we really under do understand the mechanisms of that, at least for DNA methylation. Some of the other epigenetic marks are a little bit more complicated. Yeah, I'm still uh, a little confused about inheritance. In, in the handout, you talk about priming, and I've heard it's cell to cell. So does that mean the the male and female cells, when they combine, that they have the methylation as part of those cells? And, and that's the epigenetic uh, inheritance. Great. Another great question. Yes and no. Um, there are two waves of reprogramming of the epigenome. Uh, one occurs in the sort of the previous generation in these gametes, the egg and the sperm, where there's an erasure of DNA methylation marks, and then you set up these sex-specific imprint marks that are very important in mammals at about 2% of our genome. 
Then, when the egg and the sperm meet during the magic time, there's another wave of, of epigenetic reprogramming where the epigenetic marks are cleared, except for these imprinted genes. And so there, it's supposed to be cleared, as, as Kelly mentioned, but there are, there's some new evidence that it's not completely cleared from generation to generation. And so it's a really active time, uh, a- active question of research. Great, another great question. Yes and no. Um, there are two waves of reprogramming of the epigenome. Uh, one occurs in the sort of the previous generation in these gametes, the egg and the sperm, where there's an erasure of DNA methylation marks, and then you set up these sex-specific imprint marks that are very important in mammals at about 2% of our genome. Then, when the egg and the sperm meet during the magic time, there's another wave of, of epigenetic reprogramming where the epigenetic marks are cleared, except for these imprinted genes. And so there, it's supposed to be cleared, as, as Kelly mentioned, but there are, there's some new evidence that it's not completely cleared from generation to generation. And so it's a really active time, uh, a- active question of research. So I was wanting to put a little hope into the conversation and flip this a little bit. Um, So besides looking at how uh, toxins can impact us in a negative way or how epigenetics may impact our future generations or our own existence, are there any real strong evidence of epigenetic mutations or epigenetic changes that uh, affect us in a positive way, you know, going into the future? Like uh, super positive. I know that science is always looking at disease, right? What about looking at the positive psychologies, those things that are, you know, good? So here you go. I'll throw that out at you. Maybe not in terms of superpowers, but we've looked at recovery. So we've looked at people who are recovering um, substance abusers uh, in a cohort that's been followed for about 25 years in Baltimore called the Alive Study. And we can see... Um, that there are these characteristic epigenetic marks that uh, are indicative of the drug abuse, but then by about seven or eight years post uh, drug use, it starts to clear back. So there is some sort of recovery that's able to happen in adults um, after a little bit of time. Um, Dana and I are working on a study where we're looking to see if weight loss is associated with um, sort of a resetting of epigenetic marks. I'm also working with a longitudinal study where they did folic acid intervention trials in like the 90s, and we're looking to see if there's some kind of resetting. So we can, as we initially were just doing in humans like one time point and characterizing what the epigenome looks like, and now for the first time we're able to string enough data points along to see what's happening over time and seeing um, what sort of changes can happen with with interventions and choices you make and your behavioral modification? How much control can you actually have over over changing these factors? Sure. And then another example in in uh, uh, depression is is there's a there's a growth factor uh, BDNF that is affected in um, in depression and, and is less active is methylated. Uh, is is um, associated with smaller parts of specific parts of the brain, like the hippocampus. We know that exercise has sort of reverses that, sort of demethylates that, makes the gene more active, and presumably increases the size of that brain. So, so antidepressant drugs have the same effect, but not nearly as effective as exercise. So, so exercise in this in this context is sort of a, a super positive um, environmental factor um, that affects the epigenome. A correlation was mentioned with the age of the parent and autism. Is it correlated with younger or older parents? Uh, 
It's correlated with older parents, and some studies see it's the age of the mother that's important. Some studies see it's the age of the father, but in reality, they're oftentimes correlated, so it's hard to disentangle those two. But yeah, increased age of the parents is associated with increased risk of autism. Um, there's no like tipping point; it's just like a gradual inflection. No, yeah, it's a legitimate question. Those of us who are, spend a lot of time in graduate school, it's on your mind a lot. <laughs> So these um, myth, um, I'm trying to say the, the American way, and I can't think of it. I'm going to say methyl or methyl groups. Methyl is what I would say, methyl groups, right? Um, they, it strikes me that that is going to be a free radical because it's actually got a, 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 a bond missing. Right? It's not methane, it's a methyl group, and so it's sort of active anyway. Where do they come from? Do we actually, I mean, we must make them automatically in our bodies, but are there things, if you're telling me that they act on certain genes and so on, turn them on and off, then does diet, drinking, sun, whatever external uh, influences affect the methyl groups, and that's what's causing the epigenetic effects? Yeah, when the methyl group... Uh, binds to the cytosine residue on the DNA, then that activated portion is lost. So, so it's not active once it's bound and associated. And the primary source of methyl donors in our diet is folic acid or green leafy vegetables, as Dana mentioned. Also, soy products. Genistein has a lot in there. Do you want to mention further? Yeah, so at any of... Uh, so I loved. I sit in both the toxicology department and the nutrition department, and all the you know the canonical thing in toxicology is is more is bad, and in nutrition is is more is good. And so um, we do need these methyl donors from our diets. There's a combination of, of folic acid, choline, and the universal methyl donor is S-adenosylmethionine, which you may see if you go to the vitamin store as Sam E. And so a lot of people. Um, see some of the work, especially in the, goody, in the agouti mice, if you give the moms a lot of methyl donors, they have more brown, thin pups. And so they want to go out and they want to take SAMI supplements. Um, and in fact, the agouti mice have been wonderful poster children for showing the effects of the environment on the epigenome. But we have an agouti gene, but it doesn't act the same way. And if we go out and take a whole lot of SAMI and methylate our genome, we're going to methylate parts of our genome that we don't want to be methylated. So that's not, so this is a, another example in nutrition where more is not better. There's necessarily lots of different dose response curves, but this is exactly why um, we conduct nutri nutrient diet interaction studies because you can't study the toxicant in the absence of the diet as well as some of the behavioral things like stress and other factors. Um, in fact, if you really want to read the epigenetic literature, you can find almost any weird environmental exposure that's been associated with epigenetics, like an ice storm in Montreal has been shown to, to have epigenetic changes in the offspring. So that's one that's really hard to replicate. <laughs> Thanks for really explaining a really difficult topic. Um, is it just a coincidence you're focusing on mental health disorders and obesity, or are there some disease states that are particularly susceptible to epigenetic effects? The best study epigenetic disease is actually cancer, which I'm not quite sure why we ignore. We just have our own our own hats. Um, but I study epigenetics as the, as the mechanism of the developmental origins of disease, and in some uh, in that case, you have to sort of be agnostic to what the later in life outcome is. And so we have seen effects of bisphenol A on um, liver carcinogenesis, 
and we have been able to identify biomarkers early in life that could predict someone who would become who is susceptible, more susceptible to cancer. Um, one of the biggest problems with um, epigenetics and disease is one of study design. It's really hard to disentangle. So let's say um, uh, someone has skin cancer. You do a biopsy, and you can show that there's an epigenetic change in that in that skin. Um, we don't know if the environmental exposure causes caused the epigenetic change, or whether the just getting skin cancer caused the disease. And so that's why um, there's a need to do these longitudinal, really hard to do in humans, thank you guys for doing them, studies in which you can start in mice or other, or even other animal models like uh, worms or fish, which have um, shorter lifespans, so you can begin to understand the the mechanisms that are um, predetermining um, the disease. Yeah, I would second that that and say I think maybe um, we're giving a misimpression. I think, at least in, in my case, the, the epigenetics of mental health is far behind the, the epigenetics of cancer and other um, fields, mostly because it's hard to get access to the um, to the brain longitudinally. Um, in, in, whereas it's it's possible to get access to tumors and, and skin and other other factors. So so we really can't follow. Um, we either have to look in in animal models or uh, or or use a proxy for the brain, and and so uh, so I think in 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 a general sense, the epigenetics of cancer and 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 other disorders is 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 ahead of uh, of mental health. I have it in my head that uh, gene expression and such has to do with RNA, and and if that's true, which it might not be, uh, what then is the connection between RNA and epigenetics? You're 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 right that that as uh, genes are expressed, the DNA code is is uh, is transcribed into RNA. Epigen, at least in the simplest sense, that that the methylation that we've been talk, talking about in promoter regions, now in at least the promoter region can inhibit the uh, the transcription of DNA to RNA. So so it's all part of the same. Uh, cycle. It's just different stages of of gene expression that that epigenetics and 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 RNA play a role. Our table is wondering if there are predictable changes in epigenetics over the lifespan, and do they affect longevity? I, I thought since Luke was sitting next to you, he was going to ask. You were going to ask if there's epigenetic changes in hyenas or sea lions, and that would really bring us back to the museum, but that's a topic for another day. The answer is yes. When we first started doing um, human studies of the epigenome, we started seeing all these huge signals with age. Um, And so we thought there was this enormous epigenetic change with age. And then we found out over time that actually what we were estimating was um, changing in cell type populations. So we were measuring it in blood and realizing that just as we age, um, we get more T cells and less granulocytes. So our ratio of cells change with age, and we were picking that up as an epigenetic change. So we had way overestimated the epigenetic changing changes with age, and now we've taken that number down. It's only like 1% or 2% of what it, we thought it was, but there are some um, epigenetic changes that come through with age, and they happen uh, throughout many different cell types in the body. So um, your neuron or your heart cell, they, they pick up these very small number of changes throughout the age. And a few people have done these really interesting um, 
rarely replicated studies on, with extreme longevity and looking to see what we can learn from, from these people. So there, so there are some suggestive markers out there, but they haven't been well characterized and well studied. And we know those folks with extreme longevity are often really extreme cases. You, the, you'll hear about a woman who smokes a pack a day and eats bacon all the time and she lived to be 110. So our ability to take um, information from those specific cases is, is kind of mixed and we got to make sure that we're doing good, sound, replicated science there. I just want to say a big thank you to our three speakers. Thanks very much. Thanks also to Sigma Xi for, for their sponsorship and Connor O'Neill's. And I, I really have to say, you guys make this what it is. So thank you to you for your questions and your curiosity. I hope you stay curious. Um, it's your questions which make Science Cafe go. Uh, it, it really would, it's not a lecture and, uh, and, and we wouldn't want it to be. It's a different kind of an event. So thank you very much for bringing your curiosity and your open mind. I hope you bring it back on uh, Wednesday, April 12th uh, for the Science Cafe on Safeguarding Science, Expanding Access to Public Data. I have um, the speakers include a well-known climate scientist as well as uh, three librarians, uh, maybe slightly revolutionary librarians. Um, and so I think what they have to say is really important. I hope you'll come discuss it with us. Um, I would take more of your questions, but I really want to be considerate of Connors. And I know one of our speakers tonight is actually on the trivia team here at Connors. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> so, so I'm told that they also use this room for trivia, so we want to clear it out for that. Um, I won't ask you whether you're coming to dinner with us or staying for trivia. Um, <laughs> anyways, thanks very much. Have a great evening. Good night. <laughs>